All right, as we continue in worship, then it's going to be my privilege to introduce today's speaker. He's written a lot of books, and some of them you can see at our back table afterwards. Just so you know, we're not making any money as a church off that. We're just trying to resource and equip you. And uh, that's our desire, is to benefit and bless you in your marriage and bring glory to God. So the book that really drew me into Gary's ministry is one of his earlier ones, uh, Sacred Marriage. And I remember listening to the basic thought or thesis that... It marriage is designed to make you holy more than to make you happy. And for me as a pastor and me as a person, you know, that thought is transformational. You know, as people come into the office for counseling, they're like, oh, I'm not just happy or I'm not this or I'm not that or I want this. And like, man, you're listening to movies or media or whatever. When you listen to scripture, it says there's a different purpose for your life. And so you can call it sacred marriage. You can call it sacred church. You can call it sacred parenting. You can call it sacred whatever. But God's purpose is to make you holy. And when you follow his purposes, you end up being happy as well. And so I'm super thankful for the ministry of Gary Thomas. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to the stage this morning. Gary? Let me pray for him too. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, Gary Thomas. Thank you for sacred marriage, sacred parenting, and all the work you do in our lives to make us more like Jesus, our perfect God, your perfect son, our perfect savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. And it's just such an honor to be here in a church where I know God's word is preached faithfully. Just wonderful people. And it was very kind of you to invite a Texas boy here this weekend of all weekends. But let me just say, Houston is on the other side of the state from Lubbock. It's about the same distance between Houston and Lubbock as it is where Texas Tech is, as it is from Seattle to Northern California. So uh, only distantly related. But I am delighted to be here, and thank you for opening up your, your hearts to us. Hey, when I'm talking to a new group, I found there's a question I can ask that I can get a feel for who I'm talking to instead of just talking at you. Because you can divide the world into two groups of people. There are dog people and there are cat people. All right, so just give me a feel for Midland. How many dog people do we have here this morning? Raise your hand up high. Wow, okay. And how many cat people who will publicly admit it? A little bit more than I normally see here, actually. And I, I say that last bit because I've, I've been a dog person my entire life for the simple reason that dogs are better than cats. They just are in, in, in every way. I've, I've always been a dog person, never owned any cats. But early on in my marriage, I was shocked to find out that part of loving my wife would be having a funeral for a cat. Uh, it happened, I was going to seminary. We didn't have much money, so my wife and I rented this tiny little rundown house We lived there just at the time with our young toddler. It had a shared driveway with another very tiny house, and that was rented by a single gal who lived there with her cat named Remington. And Remington would claim the whole property and almost kind of became our daughter's first pet and whatnot. We got to know him pretty well. One morning, I just had a very full day. Tests and papers to finish and whatnot, so I'm eager to get an early start. I'm pulling out of our shared driveway, but right in front of the driveway in the street, I saw Remington. He'd been hit overnight, a car, a truck, something that had gotten him. I thought, I can't just leave him here. So I parked my car, went to our neighbor's house as gently as I could, tried to explain what I'd found. She came running out. She just collapses on the spot crying. Well, that drew my wife and daughter's attention. So they came out. They saw Remington. Now they're crying. 
So I'm practically crying, not between you and me, that I cared that much about one less cat in the world, particularly one that used to jump on the hood of my car. But I'm just trying to be a sensitive father and a loving husband and a good friend to our neighbor. And they decided we had to have a funeral to send Remington out properly. And since I was going to seminary, I was chosen to officiate. <laughs> so my first funeral is literally for a cat. You, you can't make this stuff up. And so we're there. I actually learned a few lessons from that first funeral. One, you just have to let people speak well of the dead. Somebody can live these lives, they die, and everybody wants to say the best about them. So when somebody said, you know, Remington was an unusually smart cat... I held my tongue even though I was thinking, look, he's a cat and he got hit by a car. He could step out of the way, cash in one of those nine lives, but you know, it's, it, it wasn't the time. So we finally got him in the ground and I thought, finally I'm going to get to go about my day. So my wife and daughter go into our house, our neighbor goes into hers and I'm walking to the door, my car, and I touch the door handle. I'm thinking, freedom, I can finally get it done because I've been delayed by about an hour now. And then I hear a scream coming from our neighbor's house. I run up the steps. and She's white-faced, Ash. I mean, she can't even speak. She just turns and points at the couch. And there sat Remington waving his tail. <laughs> we buried somebody else's cat. <laughs> to this day, we don't know whose cat we buried. Obviously, it wasn't Remington. It's amazing how much they looked alike. Now, granted, Remington, what we thought was Remington, had been hit by a car, but... My first funeral was a farce in every sense of the term because the second lesson I learned is make sure you're burying the right person. And I, I, I had failed in every way it's possible to fail. But if you had told me, when I was young, I wanted to be a good husband. I really did. It just mattered to me. I loved my dad. I admired my dad. I wanted to be a good husband. But I never would have imagined before I got married that part of being a sensitive husband would be learning how to have a sincere funeral for a cat. I just, I just couldn't picture that up. But there were a lot of things I didn't know about marriage going in. I was only 22 when I got married. And if I could go back to that young man now, there were three things in particular I want to share with you this morning that I think were key. If I could have known them before I got married and either early on in my marriage, I could have leaned into the process of marriage, perhaps a little bit better than fighting Against it, And I just want to tell you, if you're single, there will be plenty for you as well. This is about all relationships in general. And certainly it's about setting you up if you choose to get married or want to get married as well on things to know before you get in. I said this last night as some of you were at the chair seminar that a lot of Christian transformation, not all, but a good part is changing the way we think. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so if I could go back to that 22-year-old and what I would say to younger ones today is that we need to think about things differently if we want to get the most out of marriage. The three things I think we need to think about differently is how we view marriage differently. What creates a successful marriage? If you're single, it's going to have a huge impact on who you decide to marry, what you think builds a successful marriage. What I think about myself differently as a part of a marriage, how do I think about myself? What do I think my greatest need is? And then how does my marriage impact my relationship with God? For me, it had a profound impact. So I want to look at those three things. And let's begin with the first one, how we look at the whole concept and the idea and the relationship of marriage differently. I believe if we want to build a lifelong love, a marriage that grows deeper through the ages, we need first to get lost in what's called the magnificent 
obsession, the magnificent obsession. Before I explain what the magnificent obsession is, let me explain the problem it solves. When I talk to a lot of couples and they're having difficulties in their marriage and they end up even some that I might not have worked with, they end up getting a divorce. It's amazing to me. It's not usually the issue that you usually hear people say that breaks marriages up. Financial issues, intimacy issues or whatnot. And and, and granted, this is anecdotal, but when I see a lot of couples that are just not going to make it, the sad reality is it's not profound. They're just bored with each other. They've walked through life. They feel like there's nothing new to discover. They're just sort of done with it. They got another 20 or 30 years with this person. I, I just can't even imagine it. And there's not one big cause. They're just kind of bored with each other. And part of that goes back to the natural human condition. If you think about it, none of us are so fascinating that we can keep somebody enthralled for 50 or 60 years. We're just not. Five or six dates, yeah. Five or six years, that's a challenge. 50 or 60, it's not going to happen. I mean, even if you're Jerry Seinfeld and Tina Fey, after a while, your spouse knows all your punchlines, all right? They know all your stories. They know your history, your theological positions, where you're coming politically. There's just not that much that can keep us in rapture. Now, our culture tells us if we make a wise choice, we can be fascinated with them throughout our lives. But I think the way that God made us, we were made to be fascinated with something else entirely. Because what this tells me, Is that we were made for more than each other. God made us for more than each other. He made us first to be in a relationship with him. That's what drives us. Marriage is secondary. Which means if you're single, the greatest need in your life isn't to become married. And if you're frustrated in marriage, the greatest point of happiness doesn't mean getting unmarried. So you can find somebody that you think you're better suited to. Because that is actually secondary. God made us first to be in a relationship with him. And that sense of boredom is what Jesus addresses in in, in what I call the magnificent obsession. It goes back to Matthew 6.33. It's in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus gives us the agenda that should drive our life. First and foremost, whether you're single, married, widow, rich, poor, whatever your situation, Jesus says this is the agenda for your life. It's to seek first Not to become married or get unmarried. Not to raise successful kids. Not to become affluent or even fulfilled in your vocation. Jesus, if you want the best life, seek first the kingdom, not of self, but of God. And his righteousness. And then there's this promise and all these other things that people seek. You're going to get those as well, but you've got to prioritize this. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is his influence and his rule. And the picture Jesus says here is, I'm going to come. We're remaking the world. God wants to enlist you. Once you become a Christian, you're not just saved. You're enlisted. He gives you his Holy Spirit. And then you're living every day. You wake up. And it's not, what is my agenda? That's usually what we're saying. Lord, can you meet this need? And can you help me here? And can you fix this? And can you make that? And can you make that succeed? It's, Lord, you've given me certain gifts. You've given me time. You've given me talents. How do I use those that my first priority is to build your kingdom, not mine? Which means if you're a young kid in school, your agenda is not just to make the team or get a good grade. It's, 
Lord, can you open my eyes so I see other students that, that, that need to be encouraged? Or maybe my teacher's having a bad day and instead of gossiping about her, I'm gonna pray for her. I, I, I wanna build her up. You're, you see yourself planted as part of God's work in that classroom or in that office building or in the apartment building or in your marriage. When I talk to singles, the way I put it, small lives can't build big marriages because selfish lives, self-absorbed lives become miserable lives. Why? God made us for more than selfishness. And if we're living self-absorbed lives, there's going to be this restlessness in our souls. Even if you're wildly successful, there's going to be this moment when you wake up and you say, it just feels like there's more to life than this. Why is that? Because God has created you for eternal purpose. There is no greater aim than seeking first the kingdom of God. That has eternal consequence. And if you're living for less of an aim, God lets you be discontent, not to push you away from a romantic partner. That's usually what we think is a problem with our discontent. Well, it's because I'm not married that I face this, or I'm married to the wrong person. And I believe Jesus would say, no, the problem isn't whether you're married or not, or whether you're married to the right person or not. The problem is your lack of purpose. That's why I tell young couples, don't worry about falling out of love. Neurochemically in your mind, infatuation will die. Worry about falling out of purpose because it's the lack of purpose that sucks the life out of so many marriages. Angela Duckworth in her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is talking about work. But what she says is true of work, I believe is true of marriage. When she says this, what ripens passion is the conviction that your work matters. For most people, interest without purpose is nearly impossible to sustain for a lifetime. And I would say a marriage without purpose is nearly impossible to sustain for a lifetime. The richest marriages I know, the richest single lives I know, are people who live for a purpose greater than themselves. They're not just trying to build their kingdom, their reputation, their bank account. They're giving all that they have to the great work of God's kingdom. That's what they're seeking to let God build through them. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, seek first the kingdom of God. He adds, and his righteousness. You you, you can speak, all right? I want to make it. And his righteousness. Now, here's what I think is so brilliant. In context, Jesus is not addressing marriage in Matthew 6.33. But when we apply it to marriage, here's why I think it's so powerful. It deals deals with the problem of boredom that so many marriages face. And secondly... It deals with what undercuts so many marriages, and that's the lack of righteousness. Almost always when somebody comes to talk to me as a pastoral counselor, there's a character issue that is making their marriage miserable. So when Jesus says, seek first his righteousness, he's calling me and he's calling you to die to the very things that make most marriages miserable. Selfishness. Unrighteous anger, arrogance, lust, materialism, all the things that make life miserable, I'm dying to those. And then, because the righteousness of Christ isn't just what we avoid, it's what we become, I'm building the qualities that serve a marriage. Gentleness, patience, kindness, and self-control. 
And so by just listening to this magnificent obsession, getting lost in God's purpose and righteousness, I'm becoming the kind of person that somebody actually wants to be around. And marriage serves that cause. As Jeremy said, what if, you know, quoting that subtitle, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It's not that happiness and holiness are at war with each other. I, I like the language of John Wesley when he said the only people he know are happy are those who are pursuing holy. I mean, think about it. Do you know any person with an out-of-control temper who's actually happy? Now they're, they're wasting their relationships left and right. Do you know a materialistic or critical or gossiping woman who's actually happy? No, she's, she's, she's miserable. And so when Jesus says, seek first his righteousness, I'm, I'm becoming the kind of person that actually is seeking happiness because holiness is the protector of our happiness. It gets a bad rap in our culture. I just think of how it's happened in my own marriage. When I was married at 22, I was probably the most selfish person on the planet. I, I thought marriage was about me and, and, and how could I convince Lisa to, to, to meet my needs? It just, it just sounds horrible thinking back to it now. And God challenged that selfishness to today. Some of my greatest joys are blessing Lisa. I get greater happiness doing things for her and and making life easier for her than just about anything else. And when I think of Lisa, I see how God has just grown her in kindness. She is so kind to me, and kindness never gets old. Just imagine in a marriage, if you're sucking selfishness out of it, and you're pouring kindness into it, imagine how much better that marriage is going to be. Without any marital strategies, anything else, you just remove the bad, put in the good. It's going to be a much richer marriage. Now add all of the qualities of Jesus. Now you're, you're pouring in gentleness and, and taking out arrogance. You're, you're pouring in patience and taking out being harsh. And suddenly, just by doing what Christ calls us to be, you're building your marriage almost by accident. Or if you're single, you're setting yourself up by character to have the most meaningful marriage. You can actually work on your marriage before you're married if you get lost in a magnificent obsession. Which is why in addition to telling young people don't worry about falling out of love, worry about falling out of purpose. I also add don't worry about falling out of love, worry about falling out of repentance. Because it's the lack of repentance that makes so many marriages so frustrating. The second thing that I think we need to think about differently is how we view ourselves. When I look at marriage differently, what sustains a marriage? It's not finding the right person. It's the magnificent obsession, having my purpose right and living life as Christ calls me to live it. But the second thing I think about differently is me. What is my greatest need? You know, a lot of times we don't even think to ask that. It drives us. I know it drives you. How do you know what you think your greatest need is? Whatever makes you angriest is touching on your greatest need. Whatever makes you most fearful, if that's pulled out and you respond all out of proportion, even though you've never realized it consciously, that's what's driving you. And you know what? It happens so young. I have a friend who's a worship leader. And the challenge for him of being a worship leader with a young family is that he has to get to church on time. 
Right? If the pastor's a little bit late, the worship team can cover for him. You can't cover for the worship team. They open the service. And when you've got a young family, it's so hard to get the kids together. It's like this battle plan. And so he and his wife have this ritual where whenever he has to leave, whenever he has to leave, whatever kid is ready, that's the kid he takes. And then his wife will follow 15 minutes behind with the rest of the kids. One morning, it was just his daughter. He had a little toddler. And so he took her, he put her in the minivan, but he's still running late. So he's driving like this, you know, looking at his watch, finally gets to the church, jams it in park, opens up the side door of the minivan. And then his heart just sinks. His wife had left a tube of red lipstick in the back seat and his little girl had gotten it and she just painted her face. I mean, went over her lips, up to her cheeks, is above her eyes. She looked like a clown. And he's like, oh, honey, we don't have time for this. Here, give me the lipstick. She goes, but daddy, I'm not beautiful yet. He goes, honey, lipstick doesn't make you beautiful. She goes, it doesn't? No, you need mascara and blush and foundation. (laughs) This little girl just grew up thinking, this is what matters when I go to church. I've got to be beautiful. And that's what was driving her. When you wake up tomorrow morning, there will be something driving you. This is what I need today more than anything else. And if somebody withholds it, if you think it's your spouse, if you think it's your kids, if you think it's your parents, if you think it's a teacher, a roommate, it's making you angry. But here's the beauty of freedom in Christ. We don't have to just collapse into what we think our greatest need is. We can think... Surrender to the Holy Spirit and receive what God says our greatest need is, which is often very different from what we think it is. When I got married at 22, I thought my greatest need was to be loved. Because I lived in a culture that told me that's your greatest need. Find your soulmate. Find the person who fulfills you. Find the person who completes you. That will give you a happy life. And I was pursuing it and I was dating irresponsibly and just caught up in this romantic notion. But I believe on that day God would have said to me, Gary, that's not your greatest need because you've been loved by me. No one can be more loved than you have been. I sent my son to die for your sins. I've given you my Holy Spirit as your comfort. Comforter is your counselor. I've secured your eternal future in, in a finished work. You are so well loved. Now, if you don't know God, I believe your greatest need is to be loved. Not by another person, not by a romantic partner, but by the God of the universe. But if you are in Christ this morning, I believe God would say your greatest need isn't to be loved. Your greatest need is to learn how to love. That was a mind change for me. And it took a lot of scriptures where God kept bringing it back. And I, it just was so foreign. I didn't receive it. I mean, it was a month's process where God kind of revealed it to me that way. But it transformed my marriage. And it will transform the way you act at school or work or with coworkers or whatnot. Because when I would go to work, my thought, my greatest need is I got to get this done. I got to get that done. I got to get this person to help me with that. Instead, when I go, you know what? Today, Lord, I, I need to love Like I've never loved before. I don't want you just to take my opinion for it. How do we get this from scripture? Well, first, I would just look at the silence of scripture to teach us. While there are literally dozens of passages that exhort us to love, that call us to grow in our love, to love even our enemies, to love uh, extravagantly, that our love should be increasing for each other. Tell me one verse in the Bible, just one, that says our greatest need is to find a romantic partner who completes us. To be loved like Hollywood says we need 
to be loved. You won't find that verse. And I believe if that was my greatest need, God would have told me that. Gary, you've got to get that. Go after it. But when he keeps saying, no, Gary, what you need to do is learn how to love, that kind of tells me he thinks that's what's most important for you. Let me just give you some of those scriptures to make that case. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. I love the book of Colossians because Paul is writing to a very young church. I mean, there were no spiritual grandparents in Colossae. I mean, the church had only existed for 10 or 15 years. They didn't know how you were supposed to be a Christian. And so Paul is telling them for the first time, okay, here's how Christians act. This is what they do. And he's listed all of these things, how it applies in all these relationships. And then to sum it up in Colossians 3.14, he just sort of comes up with this. But you know what? Read those first two words with me. Above all. You can take everything I've said... And if you want to summarize it, what is more important than anything else is that you need to clothe yourselves with love. To be a Christian is to learn how to receive God's love and give God's love in a way that no one has seen before. And then we have an entirely different author, Peter. In a book we call First Peter chapter 4, verses 8, he's done the same thing. He's writing to the early church. Notice how he says virtually the same thing. He says to this church, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what fascinates me is that Paul and Peter could not have been more unlike as individuals. Different backgrounds. Paul was the scholastic rabbi kind of type. Peter's this tempestuous, emotional fisherman. They're not preaching their temperaments because they were so unlike. They're not preaching their early training because they grew up in different households. They're not preaching their natural likes and dislikes because they were so different. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that two men from such different personalities, different backgrounds, come up to the same conclusion to the early church, God inspiring them. You know what? Above everything else, brothers and sisters, we have to learn how To love. And the question is, how did they get there? The answer comes because they were serving the same Lord. Jesus changed everything about what it means to follow God in the Last Supper. When he laid out to his disciples, okay, here's what it means now. We're coming to conclusion. Here's one of Jesus' most powerful statements. John chapter 13, beginning with verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Jesus is revealing his deity here. Prophet can't give a commandment. Prophet can explain a commandment. Prophet can remind you of a commandment. Jesus is saying, here's the authority. I'm giving you a new commandment. And what is this commandment? That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So he's defining it. By this, he says, all men will know that you are my disciples if, if, if you have love for one another. This is part of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Here's what he's saying. My plan to reach the world is this. I want boys and girls, teens, young people, middle-aged, senior citizens To so excel in the art of loving, sometimes even the unlovable, 
that when people see them, they're going to come to the conclusion there's something different about them. And they'll ask us after we've demonstrated this love, can you tell us the truth? How do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? If we were to apply it to marriage, Jesus is essentially saying this. Somebody should be able to look at any Christian husband or observe any Christian wife. And they watch how that couple interacts. And they listen to the way they talk about each other and to each other. And after a certain period of study, they come to this this light bulb comes on. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got it. I I bet you they're one of those Christians. Because every time I see a man treat his wife that way, he always is one of those guys that goes to church. And, And every time I hear a wife talk about her husband that way, when I know he can't be that good, when she cherishes him like that, I know she must be one of those believers. I bet you they're Christians. Jesus says, that's my plan to reach the world that the kids at school, you don't have to be an adult for this, whether you're eight years old or 18 years old, that you have a difference with your classmates. You're not joining in on on making fun of them. You're not joining in on the gossip. You're loving the difficult. Maybe somebody's ignored and, and nobody wants to have lunch with them and you go sit down with them because basically you're learning how to love the ignored and the difficult and the hurt and the insecure. But let's be honest, I don't think most of us believe the world looks at the church that way. They look at us as self-righteous and intolerant. And some of that's their own stuff. I don't think it's all on us. But some of it is, I think, because we don't take this as a commandment. We know we're saved by grace through faith. We don't have to do this to be saved. And so that word commandment is a little uncomfortable. We don't want to sound legalistic. We're not perfectionists. So... Maybe I'll get around to it. Maybe I won't. But we don't really see it as a need to drive us that we need to grow in this ability to love. We're still accepting the world's message that, you know what, really my life will be better if if I'm loved, not if I learn how to love. But I also think there's some spiritual warfare behind this. I think this is the intersection of where Satan is attacking the church. You know why? He knows if we do this, He's toast. There's nothing Satan can do in the face of a community of people that love like this. Because he knows God's ways are so much more satisfying. Lust can't even begin to compete with love. It just doesn't. When you learn to love somebody, it is a far superior experience. Encouragement fills your soul in a way that gossip empties it generosity brings a happiness materialism and stinginess brings fear and insecurity and and so he knows look we'll, we'll lose everybody if they do that and so i could just imagine him getting together with his flunky demons and say look we, we've got to go to war against this so we're going to go to those that write the the songs and the novelists who write the books everybody who creates movies will even go to the media whatever it is we're going to create this other need your greatest need is to find a soulmate a person that can love you that completes you that fulfills you that's what you need and if you haven't found it your life won't have meaning and if the spouse isn't doing it your life won't have happiness and let them think throughout their life an endless pursuit because we know he would tell them we know that person doesn't exist we know the only one who can love them like that is their creator 
But if we can convince them their greatest need is to find a human who's supposed to love them like only God can, they can go through their entire life never pursuing the one true need they have, and that is to learn how to love. If we would focus every day more on learning how to love those people in our offices or our classmates, even your coaches or your team members and our spouse, if we were more concerned with that than whether we're being loved, I can't tell you the joy that we'll add to our own life. If we don't believe that's our greatest need, you'll start to resent relationships. You'll resent the annoying kids in your class. You'll resent your neighbor. You'll resent some perhaps annoying kids or annoying parents. You'll become like those people who drive to a gym and do circles around the parking lot looking for a close place to park before you go into exercise, right? Have I missed the point of why I'm, I'm here? And then what do you, you go in and you, I don't know what you pay out here, $75 a month maybe. And you get on these machines that make your arms hurt and they make you sweat. They make you smelly and they make you sore. And somebody might watch these people from another world saying, why do they do that? And if you interview the people, well, it's easy. I, if I do this, if I accept this pain, if I accept this hurt, I think I can become a different person. I think I can become healthier and fitter and faster and stronger. I I might even live longer. And then you look at Christians. Why why do you love the unlovable? Why do you reject gossip and respond with encouragement? Why do you keep your marriage together when it seems so difficult? Why, Why do you keep loving your child when they seem to do nothing but push you away? Or why do you forgive your parents when you feel like they've really messed up? If they're responding from a Christian perspective, they'd say, because we believe we're all fallen, but we can become more like Jesus Christ. We believe we can become gentler and humbler and more loving. And every day we learn how to do that. And we're unleashed on this school of learning what that means. Here's how it's impacted my marriage in particular. Because every marriage has those little things. I talked last night about the difficulties that we have and what makes your marriage difficult. Well, when Lisa started traveling with me more often, when our kids left the house, we're empty nesters. Now she usually travels with me about 85% of the time. One of the things I thought were so funny is because she's the extrovert. I'm the introvert, so she's meeting people. She's talking all the time. And after an event, she's just telling me about her new best friends forever and, and all their life stories. And she would never pay attention to where our hotel room was. Uh, if I let her go out of the elevator trying to be polite and our room was right, she would go left. If the room was left, she would go right. You'd think half of the time she would just accidentally go the right direction, but it was funny. It was almost like repelling magnets. This was just a point of fascination to me. And so we were at a hotel one time. We had been there two or three nights. And I let her go out and she went right. I'm like, seriously? She didn't feel too cherished at that moment. might shock you, but it didn't make her feel too cherished, right? So the next time she did it, instead of saying anything, I just let her keep walking. And she's talking about 25 yards. Then she notices I'm not with her. Also didn't make her feel too cherished, right? And, and so here's, here's the thing. When I don't think my greatest need is to, when I think my greatest need is to be loved instead of learn how to love, I'm putting it off on her. Well, honey, obviously there's nothing I can do. Because if I say something, it makes you feel stupid. If I don't say anything, it makes you angry. Obviously, 
there's no solution. And Lisa was so sensible. She goes, Gary, it's so easy. It's so easy. When that happens, just say, this way, hon, with exactly that tone, this way, hon, and we'll both be so happy. Right? I, I got to apply it, apply it on the next trip, right? I let her go out. She did it. I go, this way, hon. She smiled and gave me this gorgeous smile, and we laugh about it today. We get to apply it all the time. I kid you not, I did it this morning when we were walking out of our hotel. She was going to go to the back parking lot. This way, hon. And, and so it's just every marriage situation, every teammate situation, roommate situation, you have an instance where it frustrates you. What if instead of just giving it up saying, I wish this relationship would end, or I wish God would change this person, what if your attitude was, Lord, maybe this tough coworker, maybe this tough issue in my marriage is there to teach me how to love a person just like that. Because if you believe it's your greatest need, it won't be pleasant, but you will welcome it. Then the final thing is this. We want to learn uh, how to look at... Uh, the magnificent obsession, purpose, and repentance. We think about our greatest need differently, learning how to love. And then for me, this has been the biggest impact at all for me. And that was learning to embrace marriage as worship. And all relationships are like this. But in particularly in marriage, I believe it's showcased. I had uh, some pacifist leanings when I was a young man. I studied under an Anabaptist, read a lot of Anabaptist works and and sermons and, and whatnot, and Jesus talks about a lack of uh, responding with violence and whatnot. That whole system blew apart for me. And in March, when my youngest, my oldest daughter was born, I didn't read any new texts. I didn't read any new scriptures. I didn't hear any new sermons. All that happened is my young, oldest daughter was born. The nurse took her, put her on my wife's, in my wife's arms. I looked at that baby girl. I said, anybody touches her? I'm going to be doing prison ministry from the inside for the rest of my life. I mean, it was just that that natural protection where I felt like, okay, life is different now. I, I need to protect her. And, and God used that experience where I was caught off guard by that overwhelming feelings for my kids. And I know young kids, your, your parents get mad. You have no idea what they, sometimes it's hard because we get frustrated with you because sometimes you're kind of annoying, right? But, but, but we would give our lives for you. And God used that relationship of being a parent to radically transform my marriage because I was not being the best of husbands one day. And God challenged me saying, Gary, Lisa isn't just your wife. She's my daughter. And I expect you to treat her accordingly. What he was doing was asking me to apply two verses. First John 3, 1. See what love the Father has given us. We should be called the children of God. And Ephesians 5, 1, where we're called dearly loved children. I claim that as a single man, and every Christian should. God is my heavenly Father. That's my identity. That's what matters more than anything else. That's what gives me security. It's what gives me hope. It's what gives me meaning. If everybody else rejects me, I've been adopted by my heavenly Father. That's who I am. And that is a foundational doctrine for Christian marriage, but for Christian identity. But if you want to transform your marriage... Meditate on God as your heavenly father in law, because he is. And that changes the way you look 
at your marriage. Because I realize how much I owe my Heavenly Father. I owe Him everything. And yet I'm asked to love imperfect people. James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Which means your spouse will stumble in many ways. Your children will stumble in many ways. Your parents will stumble in many ways. And sometimes kids and parents think, I'll love my roommate when they're perfect. I'll love my parents if they're perfect. I'll love my kids if they never make a mistake. But that's not when we're called to love them. But see, if we know what we owe our Heavenly Father, that we live only because He created us, and that we're humans only because He made us humans, like He could have made us squirrels. So how pathetic would that be, right? Great life. Oh, I found a nut. I found a nut. Until you run out in the street and you're hit by a car. And your innards are pecked out by crows and birds and what. Nobody knows you ever lived. He could have made us squirrels. He said, no, you get to be a human. You get to know music and beauty and truth. Because we're the only ones created in the image of God, we're the only creatures that laugh. And then not only did he make us humans, he says, some of us, you get to be Christians. You have my affirmation and my assurance. If the whole world lets you down, I'll shower my affirmation. You get to have my Holy Spirit who will protect you from doing those things that destroy yourselves. You have a sense of where you're going to spend eternity. You don't have to spend your whole life trying to earn salvation. You can enjoy rest. You can enjoy family. You can enjoy good times and good meals because I've taken care of it. You don't have to be desperate. After all he's given me that, then he says, okay, Gary, here's my daughter. After all I've given you, here's my daughter. Will you love her out of reverence for me? So now my marriage isn't just about honoring a woman who deserves to be honored. Because sometimes the Bible tells me she may not. It's about reverencing a God who always deserves to be reverenced. Who always is worthy to be worshipped. And so when marriage or friendship or parenting. Her childhood is based as an act of worship. Everything changes because God always deserves to be worshipped. And the fact that we all stumble in many ways doesn't define our relationships. The fact that we worship a perfect God defines our relationships. I got to tell you, just looking at my marriage through the lens of a parent and not just an aggrieved spouse changes it. Because I know how much I love my kids. And yet I know they're not perfect. But I want people to cut them a break now and then. I mean, my son's already married, but my two daughters, I know what will most frustrate any future sons-in-law attitudes or actions that might get a little irritating. Which is why if they would just let me pick, I think I could probably do a, a, a pretty good job for them. But but I'm also praying that, Lord, would you send them men who will still love them and adore them and make them feel safe? Because even though they're not perfect, they'll always be my girls. And it is scary to me how desperately I want my kids to be loved. I'm a fallen human. Imagine the passion of a perfect creator God who isn't just the father, but the creator How much he wants that child to be loved. And maybe he's calling you to be the love, the one to love him. Because maybe nobody else on this planet will love him. And that's why he wants you to love him. So, to transform our relationships, to transform our marriages. These three things we think about differently. Give yourself over to the magnificent obsession of Matthew 6.33. If your marriage is languishing or you're thinking about getting married... 
Make sure your purpose is in order. Is this someone to whom you can walk out serving the kingdom of God together? Or if your marriage, have you become inward turned? It's all about making the mortgage and raising your kids that there really is no greater purpose. You haven't connected your marriage to a sense of divine purpose. Don't blame the lack of romance. Blame the lack of purpose. Or is it a matter of not pursuing his righteousness? Are you allowing the sins to destroy your affection for each other? Because you receive his forgiveness, you're not receiving his transformation, and you're making each other miserable. And then when you wake up tomorrow and say, here's my greatest need, I've always thought, is this person going to love me? Is this person going to accept me? Is this person going to affirm me? No, Lord, today I want to live with an entirely different thought. I want to learn how to love like I've never loved before. I need to learn how to love an impatient person, maybe an insecure person, maybe an arrogant person, or a selfish person. And finally, to keep it going, the source that keeps it going, connect your marriage and all of your relationships to worship. We don't love people because they're lovable. We love First John 4.19 because he first loved us. He created those people. That's why we don't gossip. It's why we don't attack. It's why we don't tear down. The people that we are around are dearly loved. And we want to honor God that way. Let me pray. Father, I believe this is the best life we could live. A life serving you. A life being loved by you. A life being transformed by you. And a life worshiping you. It's what we are created to be and to do. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give each person here a new vision, whether they are young, whether they're thinking of getting married, whether they're already married and just need their life renewed. Let your words captivate us and call us to a new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.